Hello and welcome to What's Brewing in Education. My name is Scott Kuykendall. I am the Stanislaus County Superintendent of Schools. SCO's Special Education Division provides direct and indirect support services for students with special needs and their families throughout the county in school settings or in the home. Specialized services are provided to students from birth to age 22, supporting district programs, operating SCO programs on district campuses, and at our own two schools, Margaret Elanier and John F. Kennedy. Today, I'm talking with SCO's Assistant Superintendent, Sarah Grantano, and Special Education Director, Sandra Day, to learn more about the programs within the Special Education Division that are helping students achieve their full potential. Okay, Sarah Grantano, Sandra Day, thank you so much for being here today. We're gonna have a great conversation specifically about the special education programs here at the Stanislaus County Office of Education. For those folks who may be listening or watching, we are the biggest regional provider of anyone here in Stanislaus County. We have a multitude of great programs that we offer for students, um, both within our programs and also um, serving those districts here in Stanislaus County and actually even outside of Stanislaus County in some cases. So how about we talk a little bit about that first and either one of you can jump in, but kind of what is the overall mission of our SCO programs as it relates to serving students? One of our overall purposes is to provide environments that meet students' needs. And those needs look different across all populations. So I think that we're charged with manipulating environments um, depending on what students' needs are, and that can look very, very different um, in a special day class uh, with students that may have autism versus a resource environment where a student just has uh, weekly service minutes. But I think the context, no matter what the environment is, is the same, is that we're charged with creating conducive environments that meet students' needs versus attempting to manipulate a student to meet the needs of the environment. So we know how well that works, right? So just, um, keeping our focus aligned to customize environments, supports, tools, et cetera, to meet the individual needs of all of our students. So can we talk a little bit about just age ranges? Like, what are the ages of the students that we're currently supporting in our programs? Birth to age 22. So it is really part of our program to sometimes receive students, children that are coming right out of the hospital. If a parent actually has a, um, a delivery of a child with a known disability, we are able to take that child and work with the family and bring the fundamental pieces of the program and provide that service in the parent's home. And we really try to impress that the parent is the child's first teacher and that we are not trying to take the student, work with the student and fix anything, but actually have the parent know the specialized tools and strategies, ideas and ways to further the development of a, of a child. And that that can continue whether that teacher is in the home or not, mm -hmm. and that it would continue 24 seven with the parent. And if the development of a child without a known disability um, is identified and they are eligible for our services, we can bring them in as well 
um, in our Early Start program that is a birth to three program and provide those services for the students. Right, so I've been able to see um, those programs firsthand and just, I mean, infants, quite literally, you know, um, you know, in classrooms and the whole range, right? Even all the way through to the life skills programs where now we have, um, we have adults, quite frankly, um, in their early 20s. So, I mean, do you wanna talk a little bit about that? And then how do we, you talked a little bit about how students could come into our programs, but then once they get to age 22, what does that transition program look like, perhaps? So a lot of the transition program is about um, actually still supporting parents, um, mostly because it's really important for the students that we're serving in our programs that are the adults to have the ability to go into a store and shop without behaviors or without incidents, to accompany a family out to dinner and have it be a successful situation. And so a lot of that program is about community outings and making those opportunities happen with a lot of support and making that student successful in every environment outside of the classroom. So a lot of the program is based on all of those community outings and really focused on allowing them to be um, best prepared for any situation out in the community and allowing the families and parents um, the ability to have a really successful dinner, right. you know, shopping experience, whatever the case, um, that is really important in our program. So community outings can look um, very different. So we just had one I know because I just saw um, either social media posts or something, but we just took a group of students to go see a Giants game in San Francisco, correct? Yes. Okay. It was yesterday. Yeah. And had a really great time. Um, they enjoyed um, the event, dressed up in Giants um, attire, danced at the, um, at the songs that were playing for everyone to dance with, and it was just a really great opportunity for them to experience um, some, in some cases, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I know that we've got some dedicated staff members who actually even push the boundaries of even parents, right? They're involved saying like, hey, um, we are going to do this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does feel very uncomfortable. Like if they're worried that their child might act out or have a behavior in front of tens of thousands of people. And um, really with the dedication of the staff, the preparedness, they make sure that the, the students are really successful and that they have a great time. That's awesome, that's awesome. All right, let's, let's walk back now. Okay, so we went kind of from zero, right? And then all the way to 22. Um, let's talk a little bit about the pre-formal programs that, um, that we provide. So kind of what is, what is pre-formal? It's kind of a weird world, word out there. Um, pre-formal is a preschool program and the students that come into our pre-formal pre programs are starting at age three and go to age five and it is our largest program. So we serve the most students and have the most 
classrooms that provide that support for children that are in that age range. Okay, so Sandra, tell me a little bit about what, what, what is a pre-formal classroom, and you can pick particular programs if you want, but what would that look like as far as student to teacher, adults in the room ratios? Sure, well, you know, eligibility doesn't, uh, is not decided um, based on disability, right? So it really is what, meet, what environment meets the needs of students. So for example, a student may have a primary disability of autism, but an autism classroom may not be the most appropriate setting. Maybe a severely handicapped special day class is more appropriate. So once we identify the needs of the student, then we look at the environment which is most conducive to their needs. So sometimes a student uh, with autism may be in a severely handicapped classroom, and that looks a lot different than a preformal autism classroom. If their needs are more geared towards typical autism programming, which may include discrete trial training, uh, more individual one-on-one -on -one supports, then maybe an autism classroom is, is more um, appropriate for that student, which has a lot more support. There are, there are more paras in the classroom. Um, there's more intensive individual instruction for that student. Whereas maybe that student has more social deficits and they need a more social setting that isn't so individualized. And that's where we're really exploring the different preformal classrooms to meet their needs. Where an SH classroom, a severely handicapped classroom, looks a little different. There are two paras, one teacher. There are many more social opportunities for the student to engage in. So again, going back to their needs first, um, really depends on where the student is placed. Our deaf and hard of hearing classrooms um, are obviously um, tailored towards students that have hearing deficits versus maybe social deficits. So it really is customized um, based on what the student is needing at the time. Mm -hmm. So you brought up um, preformal autism as, as one of the examples, and there seems to be a lot of interest around that. I don't think that people fully under, understand autism, and it's really interesting, I think, in Stanislaus County because as a county, we have a fairly large population in comparison with other, um, not, not only counties within the state of California, but nationally, there seems to be a higher concentration of students diagnosed with autism. I mean, can you talk, to, talk about that a little bit? Like kind of what do we see here in Stanislaus County? So some of that is relationship-based. Um, sometimes we've talked to parents about um, why they have come to Stanislaus County or how they got connected with services. And so families, when they realize that there is a deficit in their social development or in their developmental milestones, they will connect with each other. And then they're sharing their stories, especially with social media these days. They can reach out to people that they don't normally reach out to or um, regularly connect with and chances are they know somebody or they are a parent that has a child with um, an eligibility for special education services and so a lot of times it's about word of mouth and sharing how they go about that process and that they need to go to their school district to have an assessment provided so that they can find the eligibility and meet the needs of the students. Um, and sometimes, because we run really amazing programs, that word of mouth also spreads and parents want to be part of a program 
that is um, run with fidelity and with best practices in mind. So sometimes they even move here for those services, but most often it's about the connections and hearing that a child might need some services and giving that direction to the parents to reach out to their pediatrician, reach out to their school district and find out what resources might be available. What do we see as maybe a more, I'll use the word effective, but you know, if, if it is the situation where um, a parent has a child who is autistic, um, what advice would we have for them as far as, you know, identifying, getting into a program is earlier, better than later? Like, what would be the recommendation? Early is always best. Okay. So the sooner that we can provide those specifically tailored and important elements of instruction and support, the better the outcome. So having them to be referred and get into a program, receive those services, the sooner the better is, is always the key. Okay. So let's say I'm a parent um, and I'm not, I'm not really sure, right? I, um, you know, my son or daughter, maybe there's some developmental delays, I'm not really sure. What do I do? What, what, are, what are my next steps? So you'd first go to your district and you'd request an assessment because in order to identify needs, everything is based on assessment, right? Assessment identifies needs and based on that eligibility criteria, then we look at services and supports that would help support those needs, bridge those gaps, if you will. So an assessment um, determines whether or not a student meets educational eligibility because just because a student may have a medical diagnosis or a medical disability doesn't necessarily mean that they will meet eligibility criteria for education. So I always frame that as a, as a positive thing sometimes that just because a student has a disability medically, maybe they don't meet educational criteria. And that's a really great thing because that means that they don't need things to be successful in school. However, when students do meet that eligibility criteria in education, then that's all based on assessment and we look at the results of that and then we determine the needs and services that would support that. But that all starts with your district and requesting that initial assessment. Okay, so I'm a parent though and I know that we provide, we provide programs for preschool students but typically parents are thinking well I'm going to go ahead and approach my district right when my student is ready um, to enter into kindergarten. Um, so that's not necessarily the case though. It should be actually earlier than that. Um, would parents, so here, you know, as a parent, you know, how, what, what do I ask for, I guess, if I'm calling up my local district and my son or daughter is maybe three? So sometimes, sometimes it happens that a parent might hear, oh, he's the, ch the baby of your family and everybody does something for him. He doesn't even have to speak to get what he ne his needs met or um, that he's a boy. And so you don't, you know, he he'll mature and he'll meet those milestones later. Um, a lot of people do have um, those thoughts and sometimes they're accurate and sometimes they're not but there's no reason um, to delay asking if there are concerns because usually a parent knows that there might be something that is 
is just a little different from their other children or from their, their cousins or children that they've been around and they just have noticed that there is not language developing or they don't want to play with peers or they are displaying behaviors that are not so typical. And so it doesn't hurt to give the district a call and share those things that they're experiencing. And then they will offer an assessment plan and address those areas of concerns with an assessment. And then the process continues like Sandra shared. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about the concept of mainstreaming? Um, let's say that, um, so, you know, my son or daughter has been in a program and now um, social education program, and let's just, let's just stick with autism, quite frankly, right now. Um, and then, you know, I get approached about this concept of mainstreaming. Okay, well, what is that? And why is that a good thing? So mainstreaming is providing access to general education, okay. non-disabled peers. Okay. So when a student is in a special day class, autism classroom, and they are making progress on their academic goals, and they're making progress socially, the goal is always to have our students with general education as much as possible. That's an IDEA law, right? To, to the maximum extent possible, students are entitled to be with general education, non-disabled peers. So when we're noticing progress in students' goals, students' behavior, et cetera, it is our charge to be considering what ways we can provide access to general education. Sometimes mainstreaming is just playground time. If it's most appropriate and it's during non-structured time in the cafeteria or during recess, sometimes the students are making great strides in their academic goals. For example, reading, right? If they're at grade level in reading, then we need to be exploring opportunities to give them access through mainstreaming in a general education English classroom. So we look at their progress, we look at social emotional needs, and what is the best setting to meet those in a most conducive way with other supports um, if necessary. Sometimes a para may go into the general education classroom with the student. Sometimes the student doesn't need that additional support. So what really is considering all of the needs and putting those supports in place to the maximum extent possible so they can access general education. One of the reasons for that is because we know that with the programming, um, we are going to make some significant gains. And that's, I mean, that is our hope. That's the whole purpose of us existing in and providing these supports. But children are great language models for peers that are struggling with language development or social development, um, even emotional needs that can be met and social situations that are brought up naturally with their peers are the, are the situations that they're gonna learn from the best. So that's why the law is put in place so that we're really maximizing student potential and, and providing that opportunity. Sometimes it might feel scary for a parent to um, be, re, be understanding that their, their child is ready to be mainstreaming into the, with the typical developing peers. And sometimes it might be a little anxiety producing for a general education teacher who might be receiving this student. It doesn't matter your qualifications um, to provide those services for students. It really is um, meeting those needs in the best way possible, and sometimes that really is with general education peers and providing the 
educational program just as they would provide to any other student. Okay, so you said something there that sparked my interest. So you talked about how even a general education teacher might be uncomfortable. Like maybe they don't, not that they don't have the student's best interest, maybe they're just don't have the background, They've, they haven't had any professional development. What do, what do we do to help teachers um, better assist and accommodate students um, in that situation? So one of our largest programs is inclusion, and that is to support students that are in a general education setting. And we will help to modify some of the curriculum and provide any behavior supports or anything that can make that a more comfortable experience for the teacher or for the student. A lot of times I, I attribute it to the credentials being separate. There's a special education credential and a general education credential. It, it is still educating students. And so I, we will often share with the general education teacher that they're, if they do what they need to do and we will help provide any support or guidance or any modifications, but that they're not gonna do any wrong. They're not going to hinder a student because they're not a special educator. They will, they will have the supports and they will be able to uh, make gains with that child just as they would all students. I mean, and I think that's good to know. And as, as a general ed teacher, like I would want to know that like, okay, there are these supports out there mm -hmm. and you know, I can access those and that would help me. I think what is also interesting about a lot of our programs is yes, we have actual campuses that are only special education campuses run by the County Office of Education, but we have lots of classrooms that we, we operate, right, with our staff, but at local school sites throughout the district, throughout many of our local districts. Yes, and that's very purposeful. Right. So it's really important to have students as close to their home school as possible. And we um, are the service provider for their students because we might take a few students from different school districts surrounding that um, area and combine resources to provide that service with multiple different districts. Um, our largest programs, or the, the majority of our programs are offsite. They are in eight different school districts around our county. And so being able to provide the support locally as close to their home school as possible is really best. Um, the shortens the bus ride and it, helps them to connect with students and children in their own neighborhood, in their own neighborhood. And so those, those factors are really important and we take that responsibility uh, very seriously that we can have a partnership with the districts and provide services for their students on their campuses and fully integrated into the school sites. What I guess before we kind of wrap up, what do you think is important just for parents um, to know, just kind of about either um, the world of special education or even if they're 
trying to advocate for their student or if they want to better communicate with their local district. I mean, I just threw a lot of things out there, but I mean, what, what pieces of advice maybe would, would you have? I would encourage parents to use their voice in any capacity that they feel is most beneficial for their children. As parents, we are our children's best advocate and we know our children best. And if we sense that something is not right, we may not know what that is, but as an advocate for our children, we have to voice what those are. And then know those resources, be able to connect with those resources to be heard. And through that process, sometimes um, it's very positive and sometimes it gets a little blurry. And that is just part of the process, I think, because sometimes we don't have the answer right away. And I don't want parents to feel discouraged if they don't have an answer right away um, or they don't feel heard right away. I would encourage them to continue to use their voice and sometimes it takes a little time for, for education and families to figure out that best, best case scenario, that best plan for their children. But I would encourage them never to lose hope of that process because we all have the end goal in mind is to do what's best for kids, do what's right by kids. And sometimes that just takes a little troubleshooting on both of our ends. Um, I just would never want them to lose hope in being the best advocate for their child. Hey, so um, just recently though, let's, so let's just talk about some of the fun events. Um, that, uh, that have been happening um, on our campuses. Uh, Spring Fling, that's one of them. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and kind of what is that? The Spring Fling is an opportunity for this, the classrooms that are offsite, that are preschool classrooms. They come on to that campus, like you talked about, Margaret Ellenier, mm -hmm. and they come together with great activities to explore and have a lot of learning that takes place. Today we had a person that has many different animals come in and share about owls and snakes and show them the big lizard and talk about animals that have hair, animals that have feathers and those that have scales and really taking those opportunities to have learning moments with that physical, tangible, fun experience around all of their peers. And it is super exciting. We have all of our programs, um, preschool programs that come together. Our Stanislaus Military Academy comes to help in that process. And they, they take care of some of the booths and activities so that students are safe and the family and the families and or the staff can hang around with the children and follow them to the different activities and the military, st the, the students from the military academy help to provide that support. It's really cool. Awesome. What, um, is there any, any other, any other events or activities that are happening? We'll have the JFK Olympics pretty soon. Okay. Um, there is never a boring day in special education or in our world. There is never a day that's ever the same, and there's always the opportunity to uh, learn and grow, and a lot of our programs are just on the road. They will do community-based outings to the farmer's market, and they might go bowling. Our um, program and our, our autism program just went bowling and, and took the kids, and that was a great experience too. So they can be small and they can be large, mm -hmm. and it's all for a good purpose right. and reason. So, and it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah. 
I think the events also provide opportunities for families that maybe they feel like they're missing out. You know, if their child is at a, a special school, right, they feel their child at a special school and maybe they're missing out on prom or graduation. And special education does a really great job of continuing those experiences for families and for students so they can celebrate in those typical developing school experiences that um, they may not otherwise get to get to have. So like our graduations, we celebrate just the same. We have a huge graduation for um, our students and we really celebrate those milestones that we can. We actually do have a prom that takes place, but also for spring fling, it's really important that parents are able to connect. Sometimes they feel alone in their, in their child's development and their needs and we have seen a lot of parents that will connect at those events and they'll switch phone numbers and then suddenly they are a team of support for both of their children and that's really one of the positive outcomes that we didn't plan on originally when we started our our spring fling and all of the events but it is definitely something that occurs on a very regular basis and it is an amazing thing to see parents coming together. So just on the topic of parents, kind of as we're, as we're finishing up, we've talked about many of our programs that we have and hopefully folks have a little better understanding of kind of what we do and the type of, of students that we serve, but what would you advise parents? Okay, like pieces of advice as far as, you know, if they were needing to reach out to our programs or to a school district, if they have questions, if they have concerns, like what are your what is your advice, I suppose, to parents uh, when they're when, like I said, when they have concerns, perhaps about you know about their own child. My advice would be to voice those concerns and to be the best advocate that you can be for your child. Um, those of us that are parents, we know our children best. We know their needs best. And I would just encourage parents to use their voice and to be empowered, to feel empowered to use their voice um, to express the concerns um, to the appropriate people, whether it's the school district, um, whether it's to their physician, whether it's to a service provider. Um, sometimes that process may be a little wonky because we're troubleshooting and we're trying to figure out what may be the best solution to meet those students' needs. And so I would just encourage families to never lose hope and to keep their voice voices heard um, because sometimes that sometimes that looks a little different um, but I would just encourage them to to remain hopeful and to remain optimistic because at the end of the day we all have what's best in mind for that child and sometimes the process takes a little longer to get to that end result um, but I think if everyone comes in with the right intention which we all do we come in with the best intentions as parents as educators to find that best case programming, I would just encourage parents to remain hopeful and to use their voice as their child's best advocate. Well, I think that is probably a great message to end on, right, that message of hope. So, Sarah, Sandra, thank you so much for, for being part of this and being part of this conversation. Absolutely, thank you for having us here. Absolutely. Thank you.